topic for today. And uh, I've shared with you that I wanted to do a, a State of the Church address. And my dear friend Phil texted me and said, what is a State of, of the Church address? Well, you're about to find out. Okay, so... Uh, Thank you for the text. You know, every um, 50 to 60 years, the United States goes through a cultural convulsion. Uh, if you date our history back um, in the 1960s, and it even goes beyond that, but I'm just going back to the 1960s, and then we've had another one here in the, this turn of the century. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, Riots were going on everywhere. The country was in a mess. There was so much racial division. There was um, protesting over the Vietnam War. Those who were coming back from that war were severely mistreated as our veterans. It was a very tumultuous time. And then in 2020, with the death of George Floyd by the police department, 140 cities reported riots and protests and so on and so forth. And there's been political upheaval. There has been racial tension. I mean, we are, we are all over the map, much like it was in the 1960s. And then in the 1960s also, there was a, and what we would call a, a pandemic kind of thing. It was called the avian flu, H3N2, commonly referred to as the Hong Kong flu, which took out almost 4 million people worldwide and 100,000 people in the United States. And now in 2020, we have COVID-19 that has taken out 5 million worldwide, about approximately 700,000 here in the United States. And it's been a very difficult time for our country as well as for churches because, you know, many people stopped going to churches, churches closed their doors, and then even trying to reopen, it was that, that caveat of, do we wear masks? Do we not wear masks? Vaccinated, not vaccinated? Close our doors, open our doors. And so nobody knew how to navigate their way through this process because it was all new to us. And so churches are doing the best they can. And people have stopped attending and some have come back and some have not come back for various reasons. And some will never go back to church because they've already made that statement right up front. And so speaking into issues with the truth of the gospel and sharing God's love for all people in a divided time is not, it's not a problem, it is really an opportunity. Because out of the 1960s and the 1970s came the Jesus movement, where thousands upon thousands of teenagers were giving their heart and their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I was one of those individuals. And I believe that coming out of what we are experiencing as a country in our day and time, that there's going to be a very vast movement of God in bringing thousands upon thousands of, again, teenagers and adults to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must stay focused on the gospel because the gospel is, is the power of God unto salvation, right? The power to save, the power to heal, the power to, to deliver. And churches also go through times of convulsion or um, crisis. So that's what I want, want to talk about today is that churches kind of go on a 20-year cycle. Um, I've been here 23 years. Uh, it may go a little longer than that, maybe a little shorter. But, you know, when a church starts, when a church is planted, 
their whole focus is upon evangelism, right? Because they, they need to reach people. They don't have any people. They have a core group they start with, maybe 15, 20 people. And so they're, they're, they're just evangelistic, evangelistic. And then as the church grows and new people come into the church, they bring in new problems. They bring in needs and they bring in all kinds of things. And so now the church begins to shift its focus as it should, some from evangelism to more now ministering to the needs of the body of Christ. But as a church grows, then those needs become more and more. The church makes that, that shift in greater ways, and then evangelism kind of gets left off to the side. And, and so the church is kind of going this way, and then it kind of starts this downward turn. And now it's like, oh, we need to get refocused on evangelism again. And by the time the church reorients itself towards that, it's, it's on a what I call a downward slide or a crisis mode. It's, it's re- going to experience a dip uh, in, in many different ways. And so this happens to churches, it happens to countries, it happens to individuals. And there are times in your life when things are going so well in your life, especially in your spiritual life. I mean, it's like God answers every prayer and, and God's using you in incredible ways and you're, he's using you to help people and, and to do you know, miraculous things. And then all of a sudden that goes away. And it's like I pray and pray and I don't feel like my prayers are getting above the ceiling. And uh, you know, I, got, I haven't had a divine encounter in so long. I don't remember when. And, and so it's just like you're in this dip. You're in this pit. Um, and you're just wondering, what, what is God doing in the midst of all of this? And, and, and how is God operating? And is he operating? And has, or has he forsaken me? Or what, what is going on? So this is what I want to address today on an individual level and then tie this back to our church as a whole. And so we find an example of the, this experience of a dip or a pit experience through the life of a young man named Joseph. Now, let me just kind of give you a broad overview of, of being in the dip. There are reasons why we can, you know, life can be just going so well, and then all of a sudden it's like, boom, we're in the bottom. We're, we're filled with anxiety and depression, and things aren't going right, and sometimes we get there because of our own personal disobedience. Sometimes it's just out of our own pure ignorance. Sometimes it's a divine thing. God, God intersects his divine will with our human will, and there we are in that pit because God is is up to something. He's doing something. There are two things that God is always doing, whether you are a church or an individual, a member of a church, that he's always doing. And when you find yourself in that pit, and that is he is crafting your character and he is forging your faith. And we'll get back to that a little bit later. And so what do we do? What are we supposed to do when we are, find ourselves in that situation? Well, the book of Habakkuk gives us the answer to that because in the book of Habakkuk, um, Habakkuk was complaining to God that like Israel's about to be, you know, Judah's about to be in a pit because God's using the Babylonians against them, their sworn enemy. And they're like, God, we don't understand. He's telling, I don't understand why, why this is happening to us. And God says, man, stand back, Habakkuk. You're going to be amazed at what I'm going to do. And then in the very next verses, he's going, he says, I'm going to take your enemy, the Babylonians, man, I'm carrying you off into captivity. What's the, where's the amazement here? Why, 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 what are we doing here? And so God said to Habakkuk in chapter 2, I want you to do three things while you're in this pit. I want you to, I want you to listen, I want you to write, and I want you to wait. And while you're waiting in chapter 3, I want you to remember what God has done. I want you to trust in what he's doing, accept what he's doing, and trust what he's Preparing you for in the future. 
Now, that can be very difficult when you're in the pit, right? It's, it seems like there's no way out. It just seems like there's nothing good that's going to come from this. But God says, no, 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 I want you to remember what I've done in the past. I want you to accept what I'm doing right now, and I want you to trust in what I'm going to do in, in the future. And here's what I know about every person who climbs out of the pit. They are never the same as when they entered it, ever. So let's tag this to Joseph, let's tag it to our lives, and let's tag this to our church. In Genesis chapter 37, we are introduced to Joseph. It says in verse 1, Jacob, and I remember Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Then he jumps to Joseph, uh, Joseph being one of Jacob's sons. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhau and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Well, that will win your friends and influence people, right? You start bringing bad reports about people. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now, Jacob's name is Israel, so don't, it's not two different people. It's, uh, remember, God changed his name. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheave rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers as if it wasn't bad enough. Uh, he says, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon, 11 stars, were bowing down to me. When he told this to his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I, your brothers, actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in his, his mind. Now, the question I want us to answer today, and this is on the top of your outline, is how would you respond to a bad situation if you knew, if you knew that God was always with you? So one of the things you're going to find about the life of Joseph is throughout his story, through the remainder of the book of Genesis, you'll hear this phrase over and over again, God was with Joseph, God was with Joseph, God was with Joseph. But it didn't appear to be that way at times. In fact, oftentimes it didn't appear to be like God was actually with him, but that's what it keeps reiterating and reinforcing in our minds. And so here is Joseph. Abraham, I mean uh, Jacob, his father, had 12 sons by four different women. Now that's a recipe for disaster right out of the gate. So there was Leah and Rachel, and then there are two handmaidens. And so 12 sons come from those relationships. Rachel was Jacob's favorite, and he made no bones about that. Therefore, Joseph and his son Benjamin, who were birthed from Rachel, were his favorite. And of those two, Joseph, head and shoulders above all of his other sons. Now, that sets Joseph up for 
uh, a little bit of targeting by his brothers, right? And that weren't bad enough. Uh, Joseph exasperates the situation by, you know, giving him this ornamented, colorful coat that says when Joseph would wear it in the presence of his brothers, hey guys, no matter what you do in dad's eyes, you ain't never going to be loved like I am. All right, so this will be the equivalent of you having 12 sons and come Christmas morning, you give 11 of them a bouncy ball and one of them an iPad. There's going to be a little jealousy going on. There's going to be a little envy happening in the, that those relationships. Things just probably aren't going to go real well from there on out. And while Joseph later proved to be a, a very good man, he wasn't perfect. And if this dream weren't bad enough... I mean, Joseph would be sent out by his dad to check, out on, check up on his brothers who were sheep and goat herders in this agrarian society, and, and he would bring back a bad report about them to his dad as like the tattletale of the family. Uh, and so, you know, when you have been set aside by your father as the favorite, and you're given this special coat, and you don't have to be out there in the fields, but you get to go spy on them and tattle on them, that really doesn't go over well with your brothers. I mean, I, I don't get this tattletale thing, but, you know, I, I remember when I was young and we uh, lived on Mulholland Street. We lived in a duplex, and in that duplex, um, in those older houses, you, you had an upstairs, and there was a register that would go from the upstairs and look down to the downstairs so that heat would rise up from the downstairs and filter up into the upstairs because you didn't have duct work up there. And uh, so I thought that was really cool. So I decided to drop a rope down there, tied off to the bed upstairs, tied up my sister around her ankles and hoisted her up and had like a human pinata. I thought this was, a, this was fun, right? And I could not understand why my other two sisters tattled on me to my mother about what it is I had done. And let's just say I didn't sit down for a week uh, after that little incident. And so this family is like dysfunctional. Notice the word hate over and over again. There was envy, there was hate, there was um, mistrust, there was jealousy that was just flowing through this relationship. Now, I want you to look at three connection points in this story. There is a dream, and ultimately there's going to be a destiny, and I titled this message from dream to destiny, but there's this... There's this pit in between the dream and the fulfillment of the destiny. And so God gave Joseph, obviously, a dream concerning his future destiny. And I'm sure from Joseph's perspective, he's 17 years old, that he thought that dream is like, this is instant, man. Like, I get up tomorrow, and this is, this is going to happen. And, uh, but it doesn't happen that way. And, and we all think when we start out in life, that our stories are going to be written in a certain way, and it's all going to unfold just the way we planned it to happen. But that is rarely the case, is it not? I mean, many of you, maybe you thought as a child you were going to be this when you grew up or that, or some of you never thought you would you know, ever experience a divorce, the loss of a child. There's, there's thousands of things that can happen to us as we are living our lives that we never dreamed possible for us. And, and maybe God gave you a dream, and oftentimes God gives a dream that is centered around the passions 
that he has given to us that come out of our experiences. For example, I, I know of an um, optometrist who goes around and to the poor, the poor of our, our country and helping children make sure they have glasses for school because he grew up in poverty. Uh, he couldn't read the blackboard. He couldn't see. He started making, you know, just had causing problems in school because he wasn't learning anything. And then finally it dawned on somebody, hey, uh, maybe he can't see the blackboard. And so uh, there was someone who came and fitted him for glasses and that literally turned his life around. And so out of that experience, he developed the passion for kids who are in the similar situation that may need help. And that's the driving force of his, his life. And so I don't know what, what dream God has given you, but I'm certain that he's given you something. And so for me, and I've shared this many times, my dream is to help people find forgiveness and freedom through faith in Jesus Christ. Because I believe that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. So what that came, that is birthed out of my experiences and out of the passion of my heart and so I, I just know as a young man who was filled with anger and bitterness and resentment and, and was engaged in um, things that were detrimental to my well-being and to the well-being of those around me, that when I came to faith in Christ and, and just knowing that Jesus offloaded my guilt and my shame and my self-condemnation, but he also had to heal my soul, right? He had to heal me of my bitterness and my resentment and the things that were driving my life, the need for security and the need for significance and the need to be uh, liked and to be you know, uh, thought well of and all of these things that were driving my behavior. And then he had also to, to offload out of my mind those, those lie-based thought patterns that I thought was truth but wasn't that was driving my, my behavior in my life. And this is why Paul talks about the fact that, listen, forgiveness through Christ is it's immediate, it's instantaneous, but the healing of the soul is a process. It's what the Bible calls sanctification. God's going to start removing things out of us that are, that are detrimental to our lives, that keep us from living in the life Christ has called us. And so the transformation of our lives he says, comes through the renewing of our minds, that we have to take every thought captive unto obedience to Christ so that we can discern between lie-based thinking and truth-based thinking so that we can start living the life that Christ has called us to, and so the truth is, is what sets us free. Now, how that spells itself out in my life and your life is however that dream spells it out. And, and sometimes God gives you the dream and you think, man, this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to do it. And then all of a sudden it's not working out and you're like in this pit and you're, you're like, God, why? You know, I, I've got so much passion for this. What, what's, what's going on? And so, you know, I'm in the, in the latter years of my life. I understand that. I don't know how much time I have left on earth, but I do know that whatever time I have, if, as long as I have breath in my body and presence of mind, I will serve the Lord in some capacity. And so, you know, you know, I'm pastoring this church, and I love pastoring, and many years ago, I was offered a teaching position in seminary. My wife says, take it, and I'm like, I just don't feel like that's it, and so I have a life coach, and I went to my coach, and I said, you know what? God's just stirring in my heart, and 
what is it that God wants to do? And, and he goes, well, he says, give, give me the five things. He says, what are you passionate about? And what, what do you do? And when you're doing it, like time stands still. And I listed all these things up. And he, he looked at me and he says, you need to be teaching. And I said, okay. And so I went and started praying about it. And, and God said this. He goes, who's the greatest teacher you know? I asked my wife that once. I said, how many great preachers do you know personally? And she said, one less than you think. That's how many I know. And it's a blow to my ego. Um, God's got to keep you humble. And so I said, well, you know, Jesus, obviously. He's a master at teaching. And then the Spirit says, and who did he teach? The poor, the marginalized, the outcasts. That's who he taught. And it's like the Spirit dropped the mic. Those are your people. How did you grow up? I grew up poor. Marginalized, outcast, bullied, never felt like I fit in. That's who you need to teach. That's where you need to go. Now, in case you're thinking I'm resigning, I'm not, okay? That's not where I'm going with this. But I am working out, what, what does that look like for me, and what does this look like for us? Because this is our calling, is to take the gospel to those whom Jesus loves. Now, I know he loves all people, and I'm not saying we just limit it to that, but I'm just saying, man, that, that was the heart of Jesus. Jesus spent his whole life engaging with the people most of us have spent our whole life trying to avoid. That's who he went to. That's the makeup of our community. By and large. So here's what happens with the dream. Between the dream and the destiny is that you have delays, detours, and disappointments. Delays, detours, and disappointments. This is what happened to Joseph. Like He's got the dream from God. He's, he's got a vision of his destiny for the future. But he, he never stepped into his destiny. 17 years old, he got the dream. Stepped into his destiny at age 30. 13 years, God was doing a work inside of him. He was crafting his character. He was formulating and, and forma, formulating his faith and deepening his faith and his walk and his trust with God. And so this is why I keep saying God was with him. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. God was with... So how did God do that? There are literally 10 tests that God took Joseph through. But for the sake of your time, I'm only going to hit five, okay? But I'm hitting them quickly. We could spend a whole message on each one of these, but um, I know I have a time limitation. So here, here's the first one. As you look at Joseph, and, and this is what I put on your outline beside that. It's, well, this is not on your outline. Let me just put this. Sometimes God has to remove something in us before he can do something through us. So think of Joseph like us. Jeremiah says, God is the potter and we are the clay. 
And God is molding and fashioning our lives into the image of Jesus. And so the, the dream and the destiny is, is a, a part of being conformed to the image of Christ. And so there are things that God's smoothing out or taking off or removing from us that prepares us for that moment that we step into that destiny. And so God looked at Joseph and thought, you know, there's some things, I mean, this kid's feel, he, he lacks humility, there's no self-control, I mean, he's got uh, empathy issues, he's extremely arrogant, we've got a pride issue we're going to have to work on right away, and so God takes him through this series of tests. The number first one is the pit test, right? So the pit test is, uh, you know, they, he's, he shared with his brothers his dream, they hate him, and hatred, listen, hatred is more than an emotion. Hatred is... I'm going to kill you. I just got to figure out a way I can do it and get away with it. That's what hatred does. So this is what was stirring inside of his brother's hearts. And so they, he goes out looking for his brothers while they're out there, you know, tending the sheep and all these things. And it's, it says in uh, chapter 37 and verses 12 and following that while he's a long way off, they see him, you know, he's got the coat on, I'm daddy's, you know, favorite. And they're like, man, we got to get rid of this kid. And so it says in verse 17, um, he's, you know, Joseph's told where they are there in Dothan. And Joseph went after his brothers and found him near Dothan. But they saw him in a distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. And here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come, now let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we will see what comes of his dreams. Right? So uh, now Reuben, who's the oldest brother, he kind of puts them off like, no, we can't do this. When Reuben heard this, he tried to, to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. Uh, he said, don't shed any blood, throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. And so they strip him of his robe, they throw him in the cistern, Reuben's gone, and it's probably lunchtime, the brothers are thinking, we got to do something with this kid, because we ain't bringing him back home, okay? Not happening. Uh, this little tattletale, he's, just, he's pushed it one, one you know, length too far, I I'm done with him. And so, now, here is Joseph, who's been given this incredible dream by God, in a cistern, in a pit. So where the rainwater came in, it was collected, and, and he's like, God, where are you? Like, will you not feel this way? Like, Lord, uh, is this the dream? I don't, I don't remember this part in the dream. I, I, I remember my brothers bowing down to me and my father, and, but I don't remember this part of the dream. Now, now um, now, Joseph could have played the victim mentality and says, well, you know, this isn't fair, God, and, and um, you know, blamed everybody else for his problem and, you know, blamed everybody else for why he was where he was in this moment in his life. I mean, I don't want to be harsh, but, you know, if your parents dropped you on your head when you were a baby, I'm sorry, but if you're 48 years old and you're still blaming that for the problems you're dealing with in, in the here and now, probably not a... Probably not a correlation there anymore. And so Joseph's in this cistern, and he's, he could have been the victim, but at some point, at some point, he, God's gotten him in a place where he ain't got nothing to do but listen and wait. And in his mind, he's thinking, God, where, where are you in this? 
And so at some point, I think that Joseph come to the realization that probably a bit prideful, not much humility here. I'm pretty sure that the Spirit of God helped him understand. Hey, you know, you told your brothers that story the first time didn't go well. The second time, eh, you need to learn some things here. You need to understand about humility because the root of pride is insecurity. And insecurity makes us feel like we have to let everybody know how much we've accomplished, how great we are, and we brag and to, you know, to achieve this sense of security and acceptance in the eyes of others. And, and lying behind insecurity is fear that people won't accept me and they, they, you know, they won't validate me and so on and so forth. And anytime you fall into a pit, the lies of the enemy always comes at you with accusations, with thoughts of hopelessness. And, you know, bring up condemnation and fabricated evidence. Like, you know, you'll never get your marriage straightened out and life is ending and it's just not going to happen for you. And somewhere in that pit, God did a, did a work in Joseph's life. So here's what I want you to write beside the pit is the word pride. So what, what's God doing? He's crafting his character. He's going to forge his faith. And the character that God has to craft is he's got to remove this pride. This pride issue is going to be a hindrance to God in what it is he wants to ultimately do through the life of Joseph. And so he's got to start moving that out of his his character. And then the second test he gets into is the palace. And so there's a, there's a caravan of Ishlamites who come by, and the brothers sell him off to the Ishlamites who are heading to Egypt, and they take his, his, uh, his uh, colorful tunic, and they dip it in blood, and they tell his father he's been devoured by ferocious animals. And so now he's carried off into Egypt, and it is while he is there, uh, you'll go to chapter 39, that, that Joseph has been taken to Egypt, and uh, Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him to brought him from the Ishmaelites and takes him, and it says, verse 2 of chapter 39, the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in his house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything that he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes, became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his entire household. He entrusted to his care everything that he owned. Now, this is quite a step, right? Because, I mean, you've just been bought uh, as a slave, and now I'm putting you, I'm entrusting you with my entire estate is what Potiphar is doing, and it says the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of, because of Joseph. And so I want you to put beside the, tal- the palace test the word, two words, faithfulness and trustworthy. Faithfulness and trustworthy. Why do you suppose that Potiphar came to the conclusion that Joseph was trustworthy of his entire estate? Because... Joseph, whatever, whatever responsibilities were given to him initially, he was found faithful in doing them and trustworthy with what, fair, what the Potiphar had entrusted into his, his care. And it built on that. Here's what Jesus said about that in Luke chapter 16. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little can also be dishonest with much. So if you have been, not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Remember Joseph's destiny? He's going to be second in command of all of Egypt, and he's going to handle all of the worldly wealth at that time. God is developing him towards that goal. And so it's, it's a test, and God is he's 
forming and fashioning him. Here's the purity test, and things get out of control because it says that Joseph was well-built and handsome, and while he's in the master's house, his wife notices him, and uh, you can imagine Potiphar's wife was probably an Egyptian trophy wife, and she had everything she ever wanted and needed, and all of a sudden she lays her eyes on Joseph, and she, in the PG version, is he just, she's just after him to come sleep with her, and he refuses to do it, and he refuses and refuses and refuses, and she's trying to wear him down until finally she grabs his cloak, and he just bolts out of the house, and she, if you read this chapter, it says that she kept the cloak right beside her, until her husband got home. And then she cries rape. And of course, if you read the story, we don't have time to read all the passages, but Joseph is then put in prison by Potiphar. I don't think Potiphar believed his wife's story, otherwise he would have executed him on the spot. He was, okay, he was, <laughs> notice it says he was the captain of the guard, which means he's the executioner for, for uh, Pharaoh. He could have killed Joseph, buried him, and no one would have ever cared. He was a slave. But he put him in prison because God had other plans for Joseph's life. It is the divine uh, destiny of God intersecting with the will of man. And so he is put into prison. Now things are getting worse. I've been put in a pit. I'm sold into slavery. Things start getting a little bit better. And now I find myself in prison. And he will spend years in prison. But in this purity test, he, 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 he passes, right, with flying colors. He, he, I want you to put the word self-control. This is what the test is about. It's about self-control. How much self-control do you have? Because oftentimes when we are disappointed in life is when our self-control is at an all-time low. Like when you're disappointed in your marriage and you don't feel like your husband's paying attention to you enough and he's not loving you enough and he's not uh, honoring you enough and listening to you enough and sometimes then you, your, your disappointment can lead to a lack of self-control where you start flirting at an office or you reconnect with that old boyfriend online and for husbands sometimes it's like maybe your wife makes intimacy sound like a chore somewhere between doing dishes and laundry and, and so then you are disappointed and you justify logging onto certain websites because of of your disappointment. It is an issue of self-control. These are the tests that God takes us through in order to, to develop self-control within us. And so Joseph passed this test, and then he's in prison. That's the next test. It's the prison test, and he's going to spend uh, quite a bit of time in prison. And I want you to put beside prison test the word perseverance and the word empathy Again, uh, Joseph, he finds himself in prison, and there's a cupbearer and a baker in there. And, and Well, he, when he's put in prison, um, so the, the guard of the prison uh, sees that there's some great qualities about Joseph, and he, in the latter part of verse thir chapter 39, and he puts him in charge of, he puts him in charge of, of the prison, right? And so Joseph's got this position, there's a cupbearer and there's a baker, and they're going to have dreams. They can't interpret the dreams. That Joseph is going to do that for them. Um, they were cupbearer and baker to the, to the Pharaoh. And so they're probably in prison because the Pharaoh thought, at least, that they were trying to poison him at some point. Because that's usually how you took out a leader in that day and time. And so they're, they're in prison for whatever reason. But here's what I know about pre prison is that prison has a way to either harden somebody's heart even harder or to soften it as it's never been before. I had a young man in my church in Illyria um, who was sent to prison, very hard-hearted, uh, very angry, 
um, very um, he acted on his anger, he, he was abusive, all of these things, and he was sent to prison um, on a felony charge, and he was supposed to be there for like 20 years. He did get out uh, on, on parole after about three years, and I don't know that I've ever seen such a radical change in someone's life having been in prison and how God took, took that time and just softened and molded his life in a way that was unrecognizable uh, because I, I remember counseling with him and I remember there was a day in which he, he, wanted, he wanted to come over my desk and, and start wailing on me. But I had a gun in my hand and it just didn't know. I just kidding. How does that happen? Because God is writing the story and then there is the, the pardon test. And this is the one I want to touch on and, and then tie this to the church. The pardon test is this. Joseph finally gets out of prison. He interprets the baker's dream. It's not going to work out well for the baker. He gets out and he's killed in three days. Then he interprets the cupbearer's dream and... He gets out, and the Pharaoh has a dream that he can't interpret, and his, his magicians can't interpret it, and the cupbearer remembers, oh, uh, there's a guy back in prison who interprets dreams. This was two years later, because J- Joseph said to the cupbearer, hey, when you get out, remember me. All right, two years has gone by, and nobody remembering him. And so Joseph is called in by Pharaoh, he has a dream, and Joseph interprets both dreams. There's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. We've got, we got to prepare. We've got to store up all the grain that we can for seven years in preparation for the seven years of famine. And so that, that happens, right? So there's seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, and that famine caused Jacob and his sons to have to go to Egypt to find food. Now his sons are face-to-face with who? Joseph, their brother, they don't recognize him because he's dressed as an Egyptian. He is speaking the Egyptian language. He's using an interpreter to talk to them. And they don't recognize him at first, although he recognizes them right off. And when he finally unveils himself to them, you can imagine the brother's response, as all of us would like, uh, we are dead ducks, man. This dude is second in command over the world empire. We're done. And, of course, you know, there's more to the story, but in the chapter 50, the famous line that Joseph says to his brothers, because then Jacob dies, and the brothers are thinking, well, he won't kill us as long as daddy's alive, but then daddy dies, and they're thinking, we're done. And Joseph brings him into his presence, and he says, all the things that you meant for evil, God has meant it for my good. It was a part of bringing me to the destiny that God had for me. Here's the test of the pardon. And this is where churches and Christians really get hung up. Is that when we experience hurt and pain, and then we let that simmer, and it turns to anger and resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness. The Bible is clear about forgiveness and not letting any root of bitterness spring up. And here's why. Because now you look at that person who offended you, who hurt you, and you look at him through a new set of lenses. It's a colored lens. And it's the, it's the lens of bitterness. 
And when you look at that person, that's all you can see. That's all you can feel. That's all you experience. And you relive it over again. And you, you justify it in your heart. And then you start slandering that person because you want people to think about them like you see them. And therefore, it is, it is what rips at the fabric of the body of Christ all the time. And Satan knows that. Of all the tests, I think this is one of the most difficult tests because sometimes things, tough decisions are made and people are hurt and I get that, I understand that. And so the last connection is the word destiny. It could be at your lowest point is the beginning of your highest spiritual good. And this is where God brought Joseph. And I think the key to Joseph reaching his destiny is that he stayed faithful in the present Believing that God would take care of his, his future. So let's talk about our church a minute. We're in a dip. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that. So this year we, we were faced with a challenge financially. And I brought this up back in September. I mean, during the year of COVID, we did fine financially. In fact, Barb would say to me, you know, can, hey, Greg, can you just keep the church shut down? Because our finances have never been better. While the church is shut down, I said, no, we can't keep church. So, you know, after, you know, COVID stuff started lifting and this past year, our giving was, you know, pretty steady, but we've had a lot of people who have died, people have moved away, people stopped going to church, people have moved uh, to another church. I mean, a lot of things will happen. And so in September, we hit this huge downfall and, and we come to the realization that there's just no way we can support our budget at its present level. And so difficult decisions had to be made. And so the finance committee uh, have you know worked and worked at this and looking at different scenarios. What can we do? How can we handle this? Some of the options were, well, we could like sell the the house and the property that goes with that and, and, and get some money there. We could sell the property behind us and get some money there. Or we'd have to sell these facilities because these facilities are large, they're old, and the maintenance on them is astronomical. It costs a lot of money to keep these facilities going. Because the, the youngest part of this facility is right here. It's 25 years old. And so uh, we knew we had you know, $25,000 worth of work needs on, done on a parking lot. We had a furnace that was on the fritz at the time, which was going to be at twenty-five dollars to $30,000. And so we had all these financial things looking at us. And we're thinking, what, well, what should we do? How do we handle this? Now, in our budget, there are two fixed, um, f there are two fixed expenditures. What we spend on this building and staff. Were two fixed expenditures. So we realized we had to reduce both of those. So the finance committee combed through the fixed expenses on our building. We lopped off everything that we possibly could and still maintain our, our facilities. And now the second issue is with staff. And this is where, this is where it gets hurtful. And, uh, I, and it's just difficult to deal with issues. So with the size of our church, we realized we were, we're a bit overstaffed. But I've always been a, a huge proponent in our church to try to maintain our staff. And so, but we knew we had to reduce that fixed in amount that we are expending. So I voluntarily, the committee didn't ask me to do this, I voluntarily took a $20,000 cut in pay. Because I believe in this church, I believe in you, I love you. Um, I think God has some great things in store for us. 
So that was one expenditure that was cut back, and then, but that wasn't enough. And we cut back some other things, and then Caleb and Barb have taken a, a, a pay cut, nothing to the extreme of mine, but they've taken a pay cut, and then with Lisa, it was, you know, we had to reduce her hours to try to get the, because we were like at 52, 53% of our budget just on staff salaries, and we had to get it down. So uh, her hours were cut back to one day a week, and um, she decided to resign, and she's been with, she's been my uh, assistant for 20 years. That, that's a gut-wrenching call that had to be made, and it wasn't just made by, you know, it, it's the whole committee had to make this decision. It's not just Greg making a decision, but we, we have reduced our budget for 2021 by um, $62,000. So we went from 427 to 341. The, the amount of income we have coming in right now, we feel like we can handle that. We don't want to sell this building. We don't want to have to sell land and capital if we don't have to. But we have to face reality as a church. If we don't grow and we just continue shrinking in size, it is inevitable that they may have to happen. We have to sell these facilities, move into something smaller. I'm just giving you reality. You can't, you can't make decisions without facing reality. And this is the reality that we're facing. So, you know, that's the budget we're proposing. It's in, it's in the book. You can look at it. You can ask questions next weekend if you like or call Barb during the week. She'll answer any questions you want about that budget. And so we also are putting forth this Christmas offering, and I thought, well, what would help us as a church to get off on a good foot coming the first of the year? So we're asking you to give towards your church. Now, we're going to take 10% of whatever we receive, and, and that's going to Lottie Moon uh, Christmas offering for international missions. But we're asking you to you know, pray, listen to the Lord, and, and give, and give generously so that we have a great start for the coming year. We have some great things that are planned. Um, I met with several of our ladies who you know, oversee our children's department a few months ago. I said, what can we do as a church to make this the greatest children's department possible? They've come up with a slew of ideas, and some of those things I've already implemented. Other things are going to be implemented. Um, Caleb also does our... Um, Social media, so we're trying to ramp up our social media presence as a means of outreach. He's also doing outreach. We have an outreach team that's been put together. They meet December the 4th for the first time to consider how can we as a church become more outreach-oriented. I see, I see outreach and discipleship as two wings of the same plane, and the fuselage is the Holy Spirit who directs and drives it. Right, So it's, it has to be balanced, and so we're looking for ways to reach into our community, reach into the hearts and lives of people so that they might experience you know, forgiveness and freedom through faith in Jesus Christ. I want this to be a place of hope and healing to those who right now are without hope and without healing, and they are wondering what in the world is going on in the world. Well, we know what is going on in the world. We know that we're followers of Jesus Christ. We, we have the word of God. We understand what's happening, but they don't. They think their hope is in the government, and nothing could be further from the truth than putting your hope in the government. Amen. We have been entrusted with this treasure called Jesus, and we can't afford to hold it in any any longer. Um, so another thing I want to ask us as a church to do during the month of December is, is that we pray and we fast. I'm asking you to fast one day a week. Now, it doesn't have to be a food fast. It can be a fast from TV or whatever. And we pray all month long, and we are listening, we are writing, and we are waiting. And we think back of what God has done, trusting him for what he's doing, 
accepting that, whatever it is that he's doing and where he's taking us. We have to come together as a body of Christ because if we don't and we allow Satan to enter in and fragment us, we're done. It doesn't have to be that way unless we choose it to be that way. God has given us a heart for people. He's given us so much talent and ability in our church. We just, learn, we just need to learn how to harness that and work together collectively so that we can be the most effective that we can be. Listen, you don't have to be a huge church to be impactful. You can be impactful the size we are. Here's always been my firm conviction, as I shared with you a few weeks ago. If you honor God with the first fruit and you give to him all that you have, he will bless it. And what he blesses, he multiplies. But he can't multiply what he can't bless, and he can't bless what we refuse to bring him. So we have to lay it on the table. We have to put it on the altar. You know, the Bible talks about new wineskins. It's not that the old wineskins are bad. It's just that they can't do what God wants to do any longer. And so new wineskin is for new wine. And so new wine is about crushing. God sometimes crushes us in order to make new wine, in order to bring change in the body of Christ or in our lives personally. This is what Joseph was all about. God was crushing him. He's molding him and he's fashioning him into the destiny that God has for him. Jesus has been very clear about the church's destiny. The question is, are we listening and are we allowing him to do the molding and the shaping and the preparation for what it is he has in front of us? So let's bow our heads together. Um, our worship team's going to come and they're going to lead us in a song. And the song, as we, we have sung many times here, is called New Wine. Uh, and I'm asking, um, a part of this song is about, it's about praying. It's about getting on our face before God. It's about letting God do a work in us. Um, it's about putting down the swords and picking up the shield of faith and trusting God for what it is he's doing in our lives personally and for what he's doing in our church corporately. And, and I, I know that um, because of decisions that have been made, that, that feelings have been hurt and, and things have been... I don't know what, what else there, that's going to happen in the future. I just know God holds the future. I'm just trusting him. I'm just believing that God... God is doing what he needs to do in order to mold and to shape us as the potter does with the clay. Now the question is, how open are we to that? We can step back and go, well, I'm not the problem. I'm not the problem. Greg might be the problem. I'm not the problem. Well, let's let the Holy Spirit decide that through the month of December, okay? Because sometimes we don't think we're the problem and we find out we are the problem. That God is, God is, man, he, he's removing something that needs to be removed. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's, you know, one of the things that, that God, one of, the thing, one of the besetting sins of our church over the years has been the spirit of complaint. You know, the spirit doesn't move in the spirit of complaint. He does move in the spirit of thanksgiving and a spirit of gratitude. Sometimes it's really easy for us to get complaining about everything and everyone. And that's just kind of the nature of our society in our day and time. But it shouldn't be in the body of Christ. 
God says, do everything without grumbling. In all things, give thanks. We may not like it, but God is always doing something beneath the surface. That's for our benefit, ultimately, in reaching our destiny. So, Father, um, I just pray that during this time now that, God, we just, just open up our voices and our hearts to you and let the Holy Spirit just do what only he can do. What only he can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.